Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about policy, culture, and how the two intersect. Yeah. And uh, today we want to talk about language and how language can be used to control culture and capital. And it can be used sort of as a weapon mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the tool that it's supposed to be. Right. And specifically, we'll be talking about... <laughs> In the context of America, which means we'll be talking about how language has been used to perpetuate white supremacy. Yes. And I'm going to switch the explicit switch on for this one, which I've been trying to avoid. <laughs> but I feel like we're, it's going to be a lot of curse words in here. Yeah. It just, yeah. So um, I was uh, on Twitter, I yeah. guess, and I are. saw Kendrick Lamar trending. I was like, oh, one of my what, favorite what rappers. What great thing has he done? It's trending. <laughs> Turns out he did do a great thing. It was a bad situation. So um, as you probably saw, Kendrick Lamar is on the TDE Championship Tour, mm-hmm. uh, a concert that both Marion and I will be experiencing Cannot wait. this weekend. Um, and they were in Alabama. And he invited um, a um, a fan up on stage, um, and they were rapping a song together. Mm-hmm. And she decided to use um, a word that she shouldn't have used. What word was that? Um, it was the word nigga. Oh, yep. So um, he stopped the performance as he should have. Um, and you know, you can read an article, but I think you know he literally says, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- I think the thing and he was genuinely shocked um, that she actually said it. And if you read ag- again, and you know, we'll link to a, a really basic article. There's not a ton of um, like hot takes on it or whatever. But um, he looks at her and he's like, "You can't say that." Right. Um, and her reaction is classic. She says, "Oh, wait, what did I do? I did it. Oh my goodness." Oh no. Which is like the classic, like, oh, I can't believe you're actually taking, I thought that this was an okay environment for me to say that. Um, which also means that she says it all the time when she's in the car with her friends. Right. Um, and so, you know, the audience starts booing, and it's like, get her off the stage, right. as they should. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so Kendrick is like, you got to bleep that out. You can't, th- he said, there's one word that you can't say. Right. Um, but I think the, you know, for one, so first of all, like thank you, Kendrick, for stopping, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and you know, calling that to attention, um, and then two, the other thing is that there's been a lot of takes, of course, afterwards, um, one in particular from Variety, where the author um, argues that rappers shouldn't say it if they don't want other people to say it, and so for me, it kind of elicited this, you know, this ongoing trope of a conversation that always takes place of. Um, and I call it the, um, if you can't, if you can say it, why can't we? Uh-huh. Um, which is a question that I've been asked. Yep. Um, I know other people have been asked. I have been asked. Um, and it doesn't deserve a response, but we're going <laughs> to give it one. <laughs> you sure are. That will not be the whole episode. So no, so that, that, that kind of made me think about, um, language and who has the right to say what language and how all, oftentimes the idea of free speech is evoked mm-hmm. as a reason why white people should be able to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that made me think about it is um, a 
bit more a bit more um I don't want to say serious because that is serious um just different more concrete. yeah a bit more concrete is um the example in Montana um yes. earlier this week where um border pull up, border patrol actually detained two women for um I think it was like 40 minutes for speaking Spanish for speaking in Spanish public. yes and I would say that it is more serious because this yeah. is like these are actual consequences right this is this is sort of what we want to get at the heart of how language is used as a weapon against people, usually brown people. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, again, you know, we talked about um, Kendrick Lamar. Um, we talked about, like, this double standard um, that, you know, people like to use of... Well, people like to say that it's a double standard, right. that they're not allowed, like, I say, white people like to say that there's a double standard, that they're not allowed to say the word nigga, and they love the, you know, distinction between nigga versus nigger, and, like, mm-hmm. that's everybody's favorite conversation. Um, I can't roll my eyes enough about that. But I do think it's, like, this willful ignorance that prompts someone to call this a double standard, because mm-hmm. we understand language has rules. We understand that words mean things in different contexts and words mean different things based on who's using them. And that's something that we understand very easily. Like, I mean, one example would be my siblings and I, like we call each other names all the time and we make fun of each other all the time. That's just sort of what you do as a sibling. But if somebody else were to call my sister a name that I have called her numerous times, doesn't matter what it was, like. I mean, it's a wrap on that person mm-hmm. existing. Like, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> and I think people would understand that. The same as, like, if, you know, like, you're complaining about, you know, like, you're complaining about your mom and you call her a bitch and then somebody else randomly calls her a bitch, like, it's it's not okay and you understand why it's not okay because you have a relationship with that person and the language that you use about them is specific to that context. Right. I think even more so is just the idea that it is on the the burden is on the person um it's almost it's almost used like this false double standard is almost used um as a way to imply that there is some level of systemic power Mm -hmm. that black people have (laughs) that (laughs) allow you know that they're denying that they are denying white people the right to be able to say this and that type of oppression um is you know is unjust and considered racist and it's like well you know if you want to trade (laughs) <laughs> um, you know the 400 plus years of oppression and enslavement and and disenfranchisement right. for the right to like we can trade Save places right now Absolutely. if you want to do that. I would give that up <laughs> in a heartbeat. <laughs> and you know and and so the the again to your point the willful ignorance to to not even think about that or to ignore that dynamic exists, which is why I say that black people are under no obligation to even provide an explanation. Right. Um, you can say it if you want to, and you get punched in the face, and you can keep it moving. Right, um. and that's the other thing about like the free speech <laughs> argument that people are like, "Oh, you're, you know, like you're hurting my free speech." It's like, no, you are allowed to say whatever you want, and there are no legal repercussions to you saying "nigga," but like you're gonna get real world consequences. <laughs> like, and what you are actually asking for is to have no consequences. You want to be able to say something and have nobody feel a certain way, nobody treat you a certain way, and that's not what free speech is, and that's just not how life works. Yeah, like, people get consequences for saying anything so kind of more examples of how language is used to as a as a tool of control Mm -hmm. um it made me think back to um larry manita 
Uh-huh. Is that how you say his name? I don't care. Oh, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Larry. Oh, boy, Larry. <laughs> um, yes, this is the, the VP of Student Affairs at Duke University. Right. And so it's your alma mater. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> First of all, I went there for grad school, so let's not <laughs> <laughs> please do not tie me to that <laughs> so strongly. But sure, so old Larry goes into his favorite campus coffee shop, Joe Van Gogh, which is no longer um, affiliated with Duke University as of now. Um, their choice, not Duke's. Um, he goes to his favorite coffee shop and he orders his favorite food, which is a vegan muffin and a coffee. And he is triggered by the rap music that's playing on the speakers. Um, who, what's the, what's the artist? Uh, Doesn't matter. Young it's Dolph. Maybe? Young Dolph. Yeah, 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 it yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so he is my age. <laughs> it's <laughs> young, little. little uh, <laughs> we're, a little, we're a little too old to know <laughs> all these new rap artists, <laughs> but um, yeah. So he hears the word nigga, and I think he hears the word fuck, and he gets very upset, and so he starts um, berating the black cashier, mm-hmm. um, Brittany. And tells her, you know, like, you need to turn this music off. This is extremely offensive. She apologizes immediately, turns off the music immediately, and offers to comp him for his muffin. And he says, no, you need to ring me up, and this music is offensive. How dare you? She apologizes again. He leaves. She thinks the beef is over. The beef is not over. She and the other barista who are working there get fired. Um, and the HR director specifically said, it's because of this incident. And can I say something? Unless you were on the Edmund Pettus Bridge next to John Lewis, if you're a white person, you don't have the right to be offended by that if um, if some, if, if it, like, you don't have a right to control that word. Right. Like, you cannot control the language. Right. You can inside be offended, but, like, you cannot verbally, you don't have that right to control that. Right, and I think, like, you, like, yeah, that's the distinction that you have the right to be offended by whatever you want to be offended by. But the fact that he used his offense and like weaponized it mm-hmm. and basically said, because of my discomfort, you are now out of a job. Right. Like that's that's the problem. And right. that's yeah, it's sort of a it's especially hypocritical coming from him because Duke students have been asking for years for an actual like hate crimes policy on campus because there have been students who have actually used the word nigga like in racist ways, like white students who are using it against black students to make them feel scared, to make them feel hurt, to make them feel unwelcome. There's also been a lot of just sort of racist activity on campus, including a noose being hung right. from a tree, like and Larry Mineta is unwilling to, you know, sort of support a hate crimes policy on campus so that students can actually be held accountable for these racist actions. And so the fact that he understands that words can be harmful, but that it only matters when he himself is feeling harmed, is just some, it's some fuckboy shit. Yeah. So, um. I really don't usually <laughs> curse on this thing, but I am heated. Like. No, wait till, oh, wait, just wait. Wait till we get to the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> I got so pissed off doing research for this one. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think another example of um, of language, I thought immediately back to the 2018 um, campaign. Excuse Jeremiah me, the 2008 right. campaign. I'm thinking about midterms. 2008 um, presidential election yes. with Jeremiah Wright, yes. um, who was a pastor at a church that President Obama um, frequented. Yes. 
I think is an accurate way of categorizing it. So if you don't remember, um, he was, um, you know, held up in the news as being anti-white, anti-American, um, just, you know, uh, Marxist, yeah, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-capitalist hilarious. terrible <laughs> person. Um, and you know, and it, I mean, it, it got a lot of attention yes. and, and he had to disassociate himself. So, you know, to the point it was beyond just kind of like far right wing, like this guy is bad. It was, you know, it was to the point, like you said, that Obama had to distance it or he chose to distance himself from him. Um, and it was a, it was a serious issue. And so I was thinking about it and I was like, I didn't remember what he actually said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to, you know, Google powerful tool and um and actually find what he said so here's here's what um here's what kind of got all that negative attention back in 2008 um in two two separate occasions he said um quote we bombed hiroshima we bombed nagasaki and we nuke far more than the thousands in new york and the pentagon and we never batted an eye and now we are indignant because the stuff we have done overseas is brought back into our own front yards. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Mm-hmm. He then he then followed up by saying, violence begets violence, hatred begets hatred, and terrorism begets terrorism. A white ambassador said that. Y'all, not a black militant, not a reverend who preaches about racism, an ambassador whose eyes are wide open and who's trying to get us to wake up and move away from the dangerous precipice upon which we are now poised. The ambassador, and he's talking about a, um, a, a white U.S. ambassador, the ambassador said that the people we have wounded don't have the military capacity that we have, but they do have the individuals who are willing to die and take thousands with them, and we need to come to grips with that. Um, and so he's, you know, those are his comments. He's talking about, uh, obviously, the context of 9-11 mm-hmm. and um, kind of talking about how we created a, a culture that he thinks led to um, led to the how we're viewed internationally by brown countries. Right. And so there are two, yeah, there are two triggers there for the sort of white middle America. One would be saying that we ha- did anything to deserve 9-11 mm-hmm. and two is a much more subtle trigger but the chickens coming home to roost thing is very clearly uh, Malcolm X illusion yes. which makes white people who know very uncomfortable yeah so that caused a uh, national uproar mm-hmm. a stir fast forward that was when I decided I was like Obama's never gonna win like that was that was yeah. when I had like I just sort meanwhile of everybody was like I mean <laughs> my pastor said the same thing He's last like, week is he wrong? but is he wrong <laughs> I mean yeah and 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 it wasn't at no point I mean nobody can read that and honestly say that he's like a sympathizer or say that he doesn't I mean nothing in that is is talking about um he thinks that we deserve this he's saying like this is a culture that we created that we contributed right. to it's a like, very this matter out of nowhere of, there's a context right. that you know sort of this exists in. So fast forward to the 2016 campaign, and I'm not going to read quotes from the Trump campaign um, because you know them. You know them. <laughs> and I mean, just uh, the fact that that violence begets violence, hatred begets hatred, was met with such backlash and offense um, that was not met by the comments that came out of the Trump campaign. Any of the comments yeah. that that man said, none of them actually led to national uproar. Nobody, like, called for him to step down nobody like and and the idea that he would use that language people said like oh he's just doing it for attention or like oh he's just trying to rally up his base as though that doesn't have any sort of long-term effects as though that doesn't lead to you know us seeing clan marches in the streets people who don't even feel like they need to wear hoods anymore or you know border patrol stopping people for speaking spanish like language 
carries weight and words mean things and having a presidential candidate say things like that have that be his entire platform and then you are surprised when that sort of racism and xenophobia seems you know seems to be sort of like rising up more than you expected like there's no surprise here like he was very clear about who he was and who he did not care for and and i think when we take those two examples and we put them in the context of um this one kind of political spectrum or this one this one part of the political spectrum that claims um, that political correctness is ruining us, um, that says that safe spaces are, you know, making, are just the worst thing ever, Mm -hmm. making college campuses um, terrible places that just perpetuate, yeah, perpetuate, you know, liberal ideas and the liberal elite. Um, When when that that part of the political spectrum claims that free speech is at threat, Mm -hmm. and yet, um, yet, you know, it's, it's, so bathed in hypocrisy about who i mean the issue for them is not um free speech or about safe spaces or about political correctness it's who has the ability to um to in to appreciate a safe space or who has the ability to express free speech um, and what that free speech promotes i mean as soon as the free speech promotes ideas of um of non-capitalist white supremacy is an issue right um and they've almost i mean and i think because of just the the sheer volume of their voice and noise they have almost monopolized i mean they've monopolized this idea of patriotism the idea of um again of you know being you know forthright and not being political correct and about you know upholding free speech but it is it is an illusion um and it's a dangerous illusion that again is part of this control um, and controls how people have the what people are able to express right. um, and how they are able to express that because right. the same people who talk about free speech being at risk are the same people who are saying that NFL athletes should not be allowed to kneel during the national anthem to protest police brutality like those are the same people right. so it's very clear like this is not about free speech this is about white comfort well, well no wait Marion it's not about his free it's not about Colin Kaepernick's free speech uh-huh. I, I just wish that he would choose a different way to right. express his a way that you would not pay attention to yeah right That's so like <laughs> <laughs> I just wish that he would be more quiet and more <laughs> docile and more like if he could just be if he could just be like nonviolent in his protests. Oh right, because kneeling is the most violent protest. Well, you know, and it's anti-troops too. So that's so true. You're right. You're, never mind. Podcast canceled. If he could just like write it on a note and put it in his back pocket, <laughs> I would be okay with that. <laughs> if he would just protest. have a journal entry that he kept to himself very quietly. But again, like the hypocrisy of like you want to protect free speech, but a man can't kneel. Right. Like that is upsetting of right. you. And like Black Lives Matter can't march. Right. Like. Yeah. And, you know, uh, somebody who's speaking at the, um, oh, what do you call it, nerd prom, the um, White House Correspondents Dinner. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yes, like that woman is not allowed to say, you know, you people in the press are complicit in what's happening. She's not allowed to say that because now that's too mean. Right. I think to that point, and I wasn't even, uh, you know, just getting more and more heated. There's so many examples. The fact that she called Sarah Huckabee Sanders out as a liar mm-hmm. and someone who supports and perpetuates lies, which she is, and was then chastised by this body that's supposed to be, you know, a neutral journalistic society. I mean, organization. Right. 
I think yeah, she was like disowned by yeah. them basically. Like they yeah. apologized for her publicly. I think the dan- what's so dangerous about that is that there's this idea that if you know, if we don't upset these people who are you know, who are yelling these crazy things on the right, right. then we're we can the we can reason with them. And this idea of reason, this I I mean, it goes back to the entire um, the DNC chair election, um, where they decided they wanted Tom Perez, who would be much more reasonable. Right. Um, there's been so many articles about can we, you know, can we just elect somebody who can appeal to both sides? I mean, is this about that Vox article where we should have a candidate of color who downplays racial divisions? Yeah, that is this one. about that? Yeah. So like, y'all can just find nah, Twitter to find nah, that rant about nah, that. <laughs> just nah. Stacey Abrams, vote for vote for Stacey Abrams. I just, I just think it's so like. Haven't y'all ever watched an action movie with a bad guy in it? Like, the bad guy's not out there for you. Like, if you help him, he's not going to help you back. Like, he's going to kill you same as anybody. Yeah, you're so, watching like, Saul, you're like, maybe we should just do what he says. Right? <laughs> it's like, nah. Or, like, <laughs> anybody who helps, like, in any of these Marvel movies is like, oh, let me just be on, you know, Team Thanos. It's like, that dude doesn't care about you. He's not going to help you. And if, like, shit hits the fan, it's you. Like, ugh, well, whatever. Thanos is a bit more complicated than... You know what? Let's just go ahead and do the next <laughs> Why don't we talk about the 1800s like you were alluding to? All right. So before <laughs> we even go to the... <laughs> Before we even go to the 1800s, uh-huh. and you can shut me up at any point. I don't know if I can. I want to talk about a little, like, uh, political theory. Okay. Really quickly. No, take as much time as you want. No, no, no. This is going to be quick because I'm going to lose everybody. <laughs> Except for my political theorists. <laughs> um, there are dozens of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the way I was thinking about this is um, there's kind of, again, the idea being how language is used to um, oppress and um, and control. There's kind of three different methods or three different arms, and I don't know if they're independent. I mean, they're not independent; they work with each other. So anyway, there's this idea of language imperialism, um, and that's the idea that um, imposing one language onto another um, in order to express dominance or power. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this idea of language politics, mm-hmm. um, which is the idea of how language or dialect determines who and how people are able to participate with and in a political system. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, this, uh, I think this is from Marxists, is um, cultural hegemony, mm-hmm. which is um, the manipulation of culture in order to promote a single and acceptable cultural norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea, I guess, being that the first two um, are tools in order to um, achieve the latter, yeah. which is probably all in an effort to um, to uplift and con- and maintain capitalism. Yes, I would argue. Yeah, I would argue the same. Um, but no, I don't think. I mean, you haven't lost me, and I'm not a political theorist okay. necessarily. But <laughs> I think that makes sense. So, like, you use, you do something like pass a bill that says that English is, you know, like the official language of right. your country or of your state, um, and that's imperialism. And then that also has like ramifications into language politics so that if that's the official language then anyone who doesn't speak English as their first language is sort of boxed out from participating in the political process right. as they have the right to do and that does yeah create the cultural hegemony that like says that white is right and English is white and so like yeah I yeah. think that makes perfect sense yeah 
um, what is right? What, what is it? Is that a quote from Dave Chappelle? <laughs> <laughs> from Clayton Bigsby, I think. I think it's a little bit older. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has, you know, I think like, Clayton Bigsby think came it, with that. I think it has its roots maybe a little bit before 2001, <laughs> <Okay>. but. <laughs> All right. So let me give Dave the credit for that one. Um, he doesn't need any credit for anything. No, so. you're right. Yeah, well. That's a holistic yeah. episode. <laughs> oh, Dave. Oh, Dave. And Kanye. They're not the same. Don't do that. I'm just putting it in a category of, of <laughs> black dudes who have just <laughs> lost touch because they're just too rich and isolated. A little bit. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I you know I think we have like examples from each of these three things and like how um, they're not just theories, but how like you know the U.S. government has um, operated. Op- yeah, thank you. Has operated these ideas throughout history. Um, so with language imperialism. Um, you know, the very basic idea of, like, just imposing language mm-hmm. um, has come in, in a lot of different forms. I think that, um, I, you know, the first place to go to is how um, indigenous Americans, how the original Americans were treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, back to, I guess, you know, was it the 1400s? Yes. Yeah. Well, 1400s yeah. 1400s and then 1400s 1600s. to 1600s, yeah. yeah. Um, so for a while now, um, you know, the genocide of, of the original Americans has been ongoing, um, and it's been a very intentional, very explicit, um, it's been legalized, mm-hmm. um, and, and rationalized. And it's been minimized, like, by yes. history. Yes. Because there's so many things, like, there's so many things that I didn't know about until I was an adult because it wasn't in my history books. Mm-hmm. And there are things that I did know about that are now being rewritten in history books, like yeah. the Trail of Tears now being a choice as opposed to being like, yeah, a genocide and mass right. evacuation. Right. Um, so part of that part of that genocide um, was was language um, and really the stripping of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, was created in, I believe, the 1800s. Um, and they were charged with essentially helping to um, <laughs> destroy um, the original Americans mm-hmm. and Native Americans or Indigenous Americans. Um, one one part of that, and specifically that relates to language, is the idea of Indian boarding schools. Um, so this is kind of, um, and I w- actually I would really love if any Native scholars. Um, or any native peoples would, you know, email us um, because again, this is a lot of this. This is not stuff that I learned in high school. This yeah. is not stuff that I've learned in even my undergrad. I experience. didn't know about this until um, a few years ago. No, yeah, and this is a lot of like so a lot of um, a lot of look, you know, trying to follow native scholars on Twitter and and trying to do like that. But it's that's no substitute for like Actually an actual talking to yes the people yeah so. I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but the idea of, you know, Indian boarding schools was um, was really, the idea behind it was to um, take children away from, take Native children away from their parents and out of their um, communities and to, um, quote, unquote, assimilate them, mm-hmm. um, to strip them of their language, mm-hmm. um, to strip them of um, just their cultural identity, um, to remove everything about them um, and to recreate them as in the quote unquote uh, Euro American, not quote unquote the Euro. I mean, I was gonna say quote unquote American, but yes, the Euro, yeah, the Euro American, uh, Euro American identity. Um, 
this happened not just in the United States. Um, it happened um, in Canada as well. And in um, Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, which reminds me, there's this video on Twitter of this guy, this racist Australian. Anyway, we're not going to. Sounds redundant. Not Go gonna on. <laughs> <laughs> not going to get into that. Um, so one, one um, I guess one thing I'll focus on um, is and how this was, you know, a part of policy um, was the phrase, kill the Indian, save the man. So, you know, a bit about what these boarding schools were. So um, the boarding school experience really started in the 1860s um, when the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established. Um, and these schools were a part of um you know, a plan to take children away from their parents, um, to assimilate them into mainstream American way of life, um, to promote a Protestant ideology, um, to teach them the importance of private property, of uh, material wealth, um, of nuclear, yeah, of nuclear family structure, um, and the idea was to assimilate them, I mean to civilize them. Um, in order to do this, they had to be physically removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we'll, we'll link to some of the resources that we're using. Um, I try my best to find Native resources written by Native people um, because, you know, I don't really want to read anything that non-Native people are writing about Native people. Yeah, That's and I think it's important, like, yeah, we need to lift up that community and writers from that community yeah. as much as possible. So, again, if you have resources, we would love if you could send them our way. Um, so... I think the idea behind this and um, is best captured by um, this speech, um, and it's by Colonel uh, Colonel Pratt, uh, who kind of, uh, I guess, symbolized this effort. Um, and he gave a, a speech in 1892 um, in promotion of this idea that was in the one of the quotes that came out of it, um, and I guess what people titled the, the speech was, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. Um, I have to say, you know, when I first started reading the speech, I was like, oh, we're not, this is terrible. I'm not including this. And I was like, oh, no, like, I have to include this. It's really, I mean, this is, it's, um, it's really shitty stuff. So I'm just going to read a a few quotes that I took out of it. Um, He said, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. And that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that the Indian that that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him, save the man. Um, inscrutable, inscrutable are the ways of providence. Horrible as were the experiences of its induction. In the slavery itself, there was a concealed in them. There was concealed in them the greatest blessing that ever came to the Negro race: seven millions of blacks from cannibalism in the darkest Africa to citizenship in free and enlightened Africa, America. Citizenship. Yeah, not well. He's not full, not complete citizenship, but possible, probable citizenship, um, and on the highway near to it. Um, so this is him sure. explaining. You know, no, what, no, no. what we, we did we for black people, <laughs> you know, what we did for black people worked for them. Right. And so we should do the same thing for native people. 
It said, in the last part I'll read, the Indians under our care remain savage because forced back upon themselves and away from association with English-speaking and civilized people and because our savage example and treatment of them. Um, so he's even speaking very explicitly about English-speaking and about how English-speaking is civilized. Um, so, you know, in this speech, he speaks so clearly of genocide um, and so plainly of genocide um, in a way that he doesn't even it's he doesn't even feel a need to justify it um, he speaks he's a, like everybody gets it right everybody knows you right have to like, but the idea that like he's found this cool middle ground between genocide and just letting people stay alive mm -hmm. which is violent forced assimilation right to kill the Indian in them, right. to just make them brown, but you know they're civilized. Right, and this wasn't like this. The, you know, the boarding school wasn't like a you can send your child here if you want to. People, kid, ch children were kidnapped. Right, um, they were kidnapped. They were taken from their from their families. Um, and it wasn't until 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. Um, and the purpose of this bill um, was to essentially give some remedy and give some protections to Native families to, you know, to prevent their children from being stolen. Um, and so this comes from the National Indian Law Library just talking about um, what, this, what this bill did. Um, the, Indian, the Indian Child Welfare Act um, was enacted in, eight, in 1978. Um, it established minimum federal jurisdiction, procedural, and substantive standards aimed to achieve the dual purpose of protecting the rights of Indian children to live with an Indian family and to stabilize the fostered um, and foster continued tribal existence. So um, it wasn't until the almost 1980, mm -hmm. um, so you know, more than a century of kidnapping um, before there was policy passed that actually said, "Hey, you know, Stop people need that. some That's protection." Illegal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So again, all of this is embedded, you know, and it's it's all about erasure of culture. But it, the idea of language is very um, forefront in this. I would just like to say, just to like you know close the loop on this, that the idea of kill the Indian, save the man, it's not a really long walk from there to we need candidates of color who downplay racial division. Like mm. what you are asking for is somebody like who has a brown husk essentially but is for all intents and purposes white because that makes you comfortable. So you feel like you are checking a box like, okay, we're letting this person live or we're letting this person be brown and alive, but they'll be the way I want them to be. They right. will make me feel comfortable. And I, if you go back and read his speech, which I don't think I'll ever I'm read it again. I'm not going to, but. <laughs> we'll link to it because I, I think it's an important, I think it's important to see how uh, terrible our public officials were slash are yep. because there's so much common language he talks about how important it is for there to be a single american identity mm -hmm. he talks about how um you know how strong we are when we are all american rather than divided people and like that sounds very sounds like you know america great again. yeah it sounds exactly like that um and it was a it was a rationale for for kidnapping and for genocide and for complete cultural erasure. Right. That's just like, it's dehumanizing language. Yeah. 
that these are not people yet. We are going to make them people, and it's okay to kidnap children because they're not ch- they're not children. They're less than. Yeah. So. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Um, the other thing was like the you know the. Um, how Spanish in particular has been politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, it's not a new thing. Um, it's been something that's been going on. Um, Mexican-Americans in particular, but uh, Latina and Latinx Americans have been, um, have been considered brown for a long time now. And as being considered non-white, They've been subject to um, to racism, and so, but you know, bringing it up to like very current day context, um, thinking back to this idea to what happened in Montana with the border pro, uh, border patrol police um, and how Spanish is you know weaponized and how it's a crime, um, but uh, you know it made me think about like for who, mm-hmm. because um, you know going back to the 2016 election, Tim Kaine, um, Hillary Clinton's vice president candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, he made it known very well that he was bilingual. Right. Um, that was a selling point. It, yeah, he spoke Spanish so many. Th- I mean, he would speak just his most anglicized Spanish, <laughs> um, and just like his grin so heavily. Spanish. Yeah, He's like I did it. I mean, to a point where like SNL was making fun of him. <laughs> um, but even like even across the political spectrum, so like Marco Rubio mm-hmm. uses, the, you know, he does the same thing. It's like, oh yeah, no, I I can speak Spanish, which means I under, I get you, brown people. Right. Um, I understand, you know, I, I'm here for you. I advocate for I'm you. I'm one of you. So it's great. It's an asset for um, white people to be able to speak Spanish. Um, it's an asset for well, Marco Rubio is the no, no, no. I was gonna get to him though. Sorry, go on. <laughs> it's a, it's an a- <laughs> <laughs> so what else? It's an asset for Tim Kaine. Right. It's an asset for people who have um, who have uh, um, adopted and submitted to um, the you know the pro the values the capitalist values mm-hmm. um, like Marco Rubio has. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that Marco Rubio is a shell of a person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's for different. <laughs> But you know, his 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 Spanish is not employed in a way that is um, intended to be um, inclusive. It's right. employed in a way that's um, that's meant to perpetuate this again this capitalist structure, right. um, and you know, and try to trick and draw people in. Right. He is an English speaker who speaks Spanish also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's how he's sort of identifying himself as opposed right. to a Spanish speaker who speaks English. Right. 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 Uh, yeah. expert uh an expert special guest yes um so this is a really um a friend mm-hmm. um and she's a brilliant is like a fantastic person yeah. and researcher yeah. and advocate and yeah yeah so we got really lucky to also um i mean i we texted her i was like hey can you do an interview for the podcast and she's <laughs> like yeah sure i was like how about today she was like yeah sure <laughs> how um, about right now we're calling you now <laughs> And then, you know, yeah, and I think to to talk about how brilliant she is and how um, how much this research is a part of her, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way that she the perspective that she provides is is um, just really invaluable. And so we'll stop Mm -hmm. and let you listen. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is about 
um, again, about how politics and language combine and how that influences how people um, are able to interact. So we'll stop, and here's Vicky. Yeah. Thanks for um, thanks for hopping on the phone with us. Um, we really appreciate it. I was wondering. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was wondering if you could start by telling us one, um, who you are, two, what you do, and then three, why do you do it? Sure, of course. Um, my name is Vicki Kraus. I um, am a policy fellow at the Michigan League for Public Policy, and I write and research on various policy issues, but mostly immigration policy, uh, both at the state and federal level, and then um, fiscal policy, like the state budget. And I do it because I'm really passionate about immigrant issues, and um, and I also grew up in an immigrant family, and so this is oftentimes immigration policy is something that's really personal to me and my family. So. I get up every day and do this um, work, and it's not easy, you know, with everything going on in the world, but I do it for my family, and I do it because I know that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to move the needle on some of these things. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. And yeah, I think, I mean, you've been doing a fantastic job just watching you, um, even though you're far away in Michigan. Um, but yeah, I guess my question is, can you tell us a little bit about House Bill 4053 and sort of what it was, what it's supposed to do? Yeah, so HB 4053 is a bill that was introduced last year um, on, let's see, it was on January 18th, actually, so it was two days before the president was sworn into office, um, and essentially a conservative lawmaker introduced this bill, and it would make English the official language for Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, that's that's essentially what it is. And, and honestly, it doesn't have a lot of teeth, meaning it doesn't really go far into, you know, what its stated purpose is. A lot of, you know, every, every official um, act by the government is already carried out in English. All the meetings are in English. All the documents are published in English. And, and it also can't sort of prevent, you know, teaching um, Spanish or other languages in classes. Um, it still permits cities to be able to host events in um, other languages or post other things in other languages. So it, it's just kind of, it doesn't really do anything other than just, you know, being a, a really, you know, hateful bill. So this, I mean, this, I guess this question is kind of like obvious, but just to call the question, um, because this is, you know, a toothless bill, because it doesn't actually change any policies, you know, why would legislators decide to do this? So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that this all came out, you know, right as, you know, we have a really anti-immigrant racist president being sworn into office. Um, but surprisingly, so interestingly enough, this, the English only or English as official language movement, really started a couple decades ago and we saw like sort of a wave of states passing the same legislation um so i think currently there's over 30 states that have an english as official language in the country um and more than 20 of those happened after the 80s and now we see this coming up in michigan and again i think it's really tied to sort of the anti-immigrant climate that we're seeing and it was just you know because it's so um it doesn't really do anything. It's it's more of just like this symbolic, you know, anti-immigrant bill that's like just trying to other, you know, immigrants and and just another, you know, sort of awful thing against, a, you know, a whole community of people and just saying, you know, you don't belong here. Yeah. Yeah, it's signaling. 
I mean, you know. you, yeah. And I think, you know, we saw a lot of, um, we saw a lot of kind of withdrawal from um, kind of the public arena following the 2016 election. Um, and, you know, a lot of fear, mm-hmm. um, kind of people were afraid to engage um, and to actually, you know, participate in the parts of government and civic life that they are entitled to participate in, either as citizens or just as residents or people who are living. Um, and so, you know, did you see it or did you all kind of notice or deal with any of those issues of people not being able to fully engage um, in public life? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, especially in the immigrant community, um, well, in the non or non-English speaking or sort of limited English um, proficiency, you know, folks with limited English proficiency, people already have trouble engaging in civic life um, if they don't have um, sort of a a medium through which to do that. Um, And so it's already hard enough for people who don't understand the language, the dominant language to engage. But then, you know, among immigrants, people who you know, aren't, don't have legal status or aren't residents of the U.S. or citizens, there was definitely a wave of fear that that occurred in the community. People didn't want to come out of their homes. People stopped answering the door to um, early childhood educators or, like, social workers that were doing home visiting. So it was, it was this thing where people really started to sort of fall away. I mean, we definitely heard that um, on the ground from direct service providers that immigrants just weren't coming to their appointments. And yeah, I think that's part of, I mean, this bill and the apparently 30 other bills that I did not know about. That's, I mean, that's the entire point, right? It's to scare people, to let them know that they don't belong here, they're not welcome here, and they're not even allowed to exist in public. Like, that's the whole point. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been very effective the last, it's only been a year and a half, but it's been very effective. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's not just, you know, this unfounded fear. It's, it's, their actual, you know, massive raids happening in communities. And so it's not just based on, like, you know, the president's rhetoric or those in his administration, but it's really, you know, ICE actually showing up in these, you know, on farms and, you know, rounding up farm workers. Or, like, last year in Michigan, there were over 300 um, Iraqi immigrants um, who were detained, arrested and detained, um, and were held in in detention for months. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's been a really awful time, not just, you know, in the political climate, but just in communities. It's, it's been really, really scary for them, for a lot of people. So um, I, have a, I have a question kind of about like what, um, about, I guess, a solution-oriented question. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if there are, I, I don't know if the there answer is. Solutions. But yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so I guess what, what one should we be doing instead? Um, can you know if we had um, elected officials who wanted to actually do good things for people? Like, what will we be doing in order to make sure that people can participate? And then, I guess the second part of that question is considering the political environment that we have, um, what can we actually do? What can we actually do? Yeah. So, like, what should we do versus what can we do? <laughs> <laughs> what should we do? We should definitely be. Um, funding um, ESL, you know, courses and in the state and making, you know, documents um, available in multiple languages. 
Michigan is actually um, has a very big and diverse immigrant population. We actually are one of the top um, states that resettles refugees. And so we have people from all over the world. And we also have the largest Arab American community in the country. So there's a lot of diversity and a lot of need for the government um, making services accessible. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I thought of in all of this especially with this bill, when the Flint water crisis, and it's still ongoing, I can't say when it happened, when it's it's still ongoing, but when it first started, um, you know, the government really neglected to to let a lot of its Spanish-speaking or other, you know, non-English-speaking residents know what was going on, and Vice actually did an investigation into this, and they um, published an article about what it's like to live through Flint's water crisis when you don't speak English. Mm. There was this case of a woman who um, said she was a non-English speaker and she would watch the news in English every morning not knowing what they were saying. And one day she realized or she noticed that they were saying something about the water in the city. And she did what was logical to her at that moment and she started boiling her water because she figured something's going on. Well, we know that when you boil the water, it doesn't get rid of the lead contamination. So she was still unknowingly poisoning herself and she wasn't the only one. I mean, there were, there. I think there's, you know, 4,000 residents in Flint that are um, Hispanic, um, and and that number doesn't even include other, you know, ethnic groups that don't speak English. So it was just, it it was really awful, you know, that there's just a that it can become a public health concern that when you don't speak English and you don't have access to the right resources, it can literally cost you your life. So there's definitely a need for that. And actually at the league, um, when we put out our budget priorities this year, one of our priorities was we need to fund ESL courses across the state. There's no, there's no significant funding for that. And it's a very important need. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely just wasting our time with, you know, anti-immigrant bills like this, when in fact we should really be making these services accessible beyond sort of K through 12, you know, because we know we have ESL courses in schools, but when people migrate here as adults, they don't, they have a harder time finding those resources. Yeah. Well, that's, that was really insightful. Um, Yeah. And I think this is something that, I think this is one of the areas that I realize, like I have to keep on relearning my own privilege because that's Mm -hmm. like, language barriers is never something that I think about until somebody points it out to me. So it's never my first instinct to say like, okay, we need to make sure this is accessible to people who don't speak English as a first language. And so it is always, yeah, enlightening to hear people talk about it and remind me like, yeah, there's a huge, I mean, there's a huge barrier to civic participation to just sort of, like you said, to public health access. There are just all these huge barriers that I'm not necessarily always conscious of and I need to be. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I am bilingual myself. And yet, because I'm so immersed in, you know, in the work that I do that that we only, you know, we we only speak English at work. I went to, you know, an English speaking school. And so I also forget that sometimes, you know, that there that, you know, there's people like my family members who still have a hard time connecting with the world. Um, And it is, it's frustrating, you know, that they have to, to navigate the world that way. And then, on top of that, there's all these barriers to having resources in their language. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate it. Are there any final nuggets that you want to leave us with? <laughs> nuggets of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, hmm, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I guess just 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's really awful, the sort of policies that we're seeing right now, especially at the state level where states think they can, you know, violate federal law. Right. Uh, and that's the thing about immigration policy. A lot of it is federal. And so um, it's it's a scary time to see states sort of feeling empowered and, and doing all of these things. But the consequences are real. So just being, you know, mindful of that and, um, you know, being allies to both immigrants but also you know people with limited english proficiency um yeah i think that's just i don't know if that's a nugget but <laughs> no that definitely yeah, yeah that, that counts as a nugget <laughs> <laughs> cool well vicky we really really appreciate it um it's always great talking to you yeah thank yeah, you so you much too. Yeah. all right take care yeah all right talk to you, you soon. too bye bye talking about one why this the significance of this policy um, and how it actually impacts people Mm -hmm. Um, and I think one you know one of the most interesting things she was really talking about is like the example of the public health implications of language um, and how that right me neither yeah so great job as always yes so I want to talk more about um, I want to hear your thoughts on um, kind of how you know language we've talked about language but how it really leads to culture Mm -hmm. and defining what is a cultural norm Mm -hmm. um and what's acceptable um and what's seen as what's valued and what's what's seen as a deficit right and i feel like you see it in a lot of different there are a lot of nuances to the conversation right so there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that you can say english is the only right language to speak in this country so that's one like macro level very strong um narrative there's also the like kind of english that you speak so like your dialect and what's good english versus bad english and you see this i can't speak for other languages you see this in every culture where england came and um colonized Mm. (laughs) just like go on Mm. okay no um but like here (laughs) you know talking about how like ebonics yeah is not don't even use that word african-american vernacular (laughs) african-american vernacular (laughs) english is not (laughs) i'm old we said ebonics but (laughs) But like yeah like basically the way black people talk is not the right sort of english like that's not how you're supposed to talk that's not an educated way to speak that's not a civilized way to speak i've got air quotes all over the place but like that's also happening and even accents and how those can be coded as unintelligent and you know not worth your time so like especially people with southern accents being and black people with southern accents being coded as unintelligent and lazy and therefore undeserving and you're sort of not real america like it's yeah and even within southern accents there, there are different sorts of southern accents and so there are some that seem really posh and you know like stately and you can imagine this person being a plantation owner and then there's some that are you know associated with sort of like hillbillies or the sort of poor people the other thing um, you make me think about is <laughs> going back to the last episode, um, <laughs> Zora Neale Hurston yeah. and her how she writes. Yeah. Um, because so one of the biggest issues that people had with her autobiography um, and well, not just her autobiography, I guess with her writing in general with all of her writing, and yeah, her, she you know, in dialect. she writes in dialect. And so there were two issues with it. One, 
um, I guess three issues. One, people are like, I can't read this, <laughs> which is real. I mean, like, if you ever, you know, if you read her, it, it, it's, it's a slower read because... Um, it's a different... It's like, yeah, you it have to like adjust to it. Language. It's like Faulkner. Like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of black writers at the time, and black intellects at the time, I guess black people at the time, were like, you can't write, you can't publish this. This is embarrassing. Right, like, we need to sound like white people. Right, and, and her whole point was like, no, this is empowering. Like, this dialogue and dialect... And actually, there are arguments that it's not a dialect. It's a language onto right. and of itself. Or, you know, but anyway, it, it deserves to be published because it is the way that people speak and it is valid. Right. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and she caught a hell all the you know up and down for that. She did. Um, and it's like, it's still something that comes up. Like, I like the idea that it's a language in and of itself. Like, there are some phrases that, like, people who don't speak this language don't understand. Like saying like, we've been knowing that. Like yeah. people don't know what that means right. unless they use that, right. like, unless they speak the language. Right, like, you're, you're, you're so right. Cause it's not just like, it's not just a wrong, it's not like it been is being used wrong. Like right. it actually- It's actually being used like in a very specific way and there are rules associated right. with it. Right, yeah, yeah. In a way, and especially in a way that um, there is no equivalent Right. And what would be consult right. called? Like, I can't translate that. It's like, yeah. but I just I can't say it in a different way. Yeah. That's just what it is. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. know. We've been know how to talk. Right. You know, you like, can't. How else am I supposed to say that? Yeah. Like, there is an art. I'm gonna try to find it. There's an article that um, a professor actually went through and talked about the rules of um, what is it? AAVE. Mm-hmm. Um, African American vernacular. Yeah, and he actually he actually documented the rules and explained why it's it is classified as, it should be classified as a language because um, it does you know it's not just this thrown together thing it it has logic to it. I actually I think I know what you're talking about because I'm pretty sure I cited it in a paper that I wrote yeah. about how it's like it should be taken seriously yeah. as uh, I didn't call it a language but I said that it has like grammatical rules that yeah, yeah. are not not necessarily the same as you know like. American Standard English, but they are as strong and as adhered to as those rules right. in any other language. Yeah, for sure. Um, hmm. I was a little baby. <laughs> I was a freshman. Oh, that was so long ago. <laughs> been working on this. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I want to talk about this Aaron Schlossberg guy who like accosted some people in the in the restaurant that he was in, like the fast casual, I don't know if it was a Chipotle, but he was at a fast casual restaurant and he got irate, like violently angry because the employees were speaking Spanish to some of the customers. And he found this to be like morally reprehensible. He found it to be personally offensive. And he said that he, like his phone call was going to be to ICE because he specifically said like, I bet you they're also undocumented. And so he was gonna call ICE in order to get them taken out of there because this is America, you speak English and it's wrong for you to speak Spanish in front of me. It's essentially what he's saying. It's especially interesting to me because it turns out he, like, this isn't the first time he's done this. He's been doing this to people all over the place. And he did it to somebody, I know, right? He did it to this guy who it turns out is like a mini YouTube star. um, And he, um, apparently this guy was walking down the wrong side of the sidewalk in New York City. And this is I'm a country mouse. I don't understand why there are these rules about what way you can walk up the sidewalk. It's a big city, I guess. I don't know. He body checks this guy and then starts screaming at him about how he's walking on the wrong side of the sidewalk and he is a, quote, ugly fucking foreigner and he was going to call the police and he was going to call ICE to get him sent back to where he comes from. 
this dude is white. Um, this dude is from Massachusetts. He is an American citizen. So clearly, like, this is just, this man is angry that there are other people around. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because this guy has a beard. Like, I don't know what it is that triggered him about this guy, but he clearly, like... He's not Anglo enough for him. Right. He's not, like, Anglo enough for him, which I think is very interesting. But, um, yeah, so it's just, like, I think this is a very clear example of what you're talking about, like, language politics, that if you're speaking Spanish in front of this man, he assumes you are not supposed to be here. I bet you're not even allowed to be here. And I'm going right. to use the law to get you out of here. And he is a lawyer. And like that has its own sort of terrifying dimension to it. But yeah. yeah, so it's not like, it's not just words and it's not just one guy. Like it's one man who is reading the exact message that he's supposed to be, that ICE is a weapon of white supremacy yeah. and that ICE is there to make white people feel comfortable and to get all of the brown people out of here. And I mean, it does not, it is worth mentioning mm -hmm. and kind of repeating just like the complete hip hypocrisy that is like Eurocentrism mm -hmm. in this land that is North America. Right. Like, you are not even supposed <laughs> to be here. And I mean, um, you know, are supposed to be we here. see the memes and, like, it's always kind of this running thing of, like, you know, this is not your country. Right. You know, you are immigrants to this country. You right. are not the original people to this country. Right. But, like, it does deserve repeating of, like, that is how strong white supremacy is. Mm -hmm. That's how strong the culture of whiteness is, mm -hmm. that you can choose when and where history starts mm -hmm. um, and and rewrite it to a way that completely justifies and creates this all this alternative reality right. as if this place was not you know this place was not born this society that we're living in now was not born out of genocide right um, like it was it was violently made yeah it didn't just happen like it's not like the status quo as we know it now didn't just happen by accident it w people were massacred in order for us to yeah. be here like so yeah that's my little rant on <laughs> Aaron who has issued an apology and says that he is not racist and this whole experience has opened his eyes and I think that might be because he's been <laughs> shut out of the building where he practices law <laughs> and people are sending mariachi bands outside of his apartment <laughs> I could be wrong <laughs> uh, and I would also like to say that like he is a great example, and the white woman calling the cops yes. on um, the people who were, you know, like barbecuing outside, right. and the woman who called campus police on the black woman who's taken a nap in the common room of the school that she attends. These are all examples that, like, racism is not just like one type of person's thing. Like, it's not relegated to, you know, like. I think there's this narrative that keeps on happening that it's just for it's working class whites right. who are racist because they have no other recourse. The woman in Oakland, she was a professor. She's a professor yeah, at, at I don't know. Stanford. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like she's so yeah, maybe not Stanford. Take that part out. One of the she's Silicon Valley schools, I don't know. One of the liberal institutions. Right, she is a professor at a liberal institution and Aaron Schlossberg is a lawyer in New York City, the, like mm -hmm. the melting pot of the country. Right. And, you know, like there's this grad student at Yale. Like racism is not just a lower class thing and it's not a certain sort of white person thing. It is an all sort of white people right. kind of thing. Yeah. It is a problem for all white people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so I don't know what the takeaways are here. It's, I mean, I think going back to one of your points that you made in um, a conversation with Vicky mm -hmm. about um, the privilege that, you know, of someone whose first language is English. Um, in my case, that's my only language. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not fluent in any other, um, in any other language other than English. And so there's definitely a privilege that comes, that I don't see um, most often, um, regardless of, you know, my ideology or where I fall along um, the political spectrum. Um, and then even, you know, working for a progressive left-leaning nonprofit advocacy organization um, thinking about you know how how poorly of a job we do um, in in integrating language and how we perpetuate um, kind of English supremacy or whatever you want to call it language imperialism. Yeah. I mean you, we're at a point where we're like well, let's translate and sometimes we can do that and sometimes we can't. Right. And, and the fact that we don't always have like we say we don't have the capacity right. to translate like we don't have time or we don't have translators that we can reach out to right. quickly enough like yeah. Yeah. So we all got to do better. Yes. I guess the takeaway. <laughs> that is the solution. Yeah. We need to be better. And just be conscious of and I think I don't like I don't really like using privilege that much anymore. Mhm. Mm Especially the idea of white privilege because as soon as it becomes activated, it's not just privilege anymore. It's not passive. Mm -hmm. It is white supremacy, yeah. um, and it is white power. And I think, like I, I like to use the word power more. That like I have the power of having English as my first language. And if I'm in a place that doesn't have English, I also speak other languages, so I could probably make do. Like it's, but yeah, that is a power that I have that I need to share with other people. Like the power that I have to move through space, sort of unencumbered by language barriers is something that I need to share. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that we should all share. Yeah. So Brian, what are you reading? Um, a couple of things. Um, so the article or you know there's a number of articles talking about um <clears throat> the stop in montana uh i think the one that has been most insightful for me is one by vox called stopping americans uh, stopping americans for speaking english spanish um the latest evidence that border patrol agents have gone have too much power mm -hmm. i think the thing that's helpful about this piece um is that they, they, they talk about the incident, but then they also explain why what the border police did was actually legal. Yeah. Um, because it's one thing to you know, again you know, this is not one bad cop. It's not one cop who's racist. It's the it's, it's a, yeah. Um, like Aaron Schlossberg notes. Right. So one thing this um, article talks about is the fact that border police have uh, kind of undefined expanded powers to stop people under suspicion um, within a hundred miles of any US border, whether it be a physical or water border. And that is a huge Yeah. Like that's and all yeah. Of so you don't it, it no, it literally it is all of Florida. It is all of Florida. It's um, 
all of Los Angeles County, which has like a larger population than like a majority than like 40%, 40 states. Mm-hmm. Um, it is all of New York City. Um, it is a major a majority of the U.S. population lives within a hundred miles of the border. And that's that's very intentional. Like right. they are clearly targeting places that yeah. have large spanish-speaking population so when we think about like you know you might read this and be like oh well it's just places you know you might have in your mind like the war is border and think like oh well that's where border police are no they are everywhere where people are and they have this almost unlimited power to stop and harass people um and the vox point really the vox article really gets to that point of like this is you know as terrible as this is they're allowed to do this um that makes up for their article about how Cory Booker is the is the way forward because he's no it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> it sort of balances it out it ba- yeah, it, yeah does. it doesn't make up for it but it balances it um, out he's the way forward because he is black but not too black you're right if I were Cory Booker I'd be like first of all <laughs> don't do that to me although Cory Booker is probably say, like if you were Cory Booker you'd be like oh thank you so much I know, <laughs> I know. Um, another thing uh, I'm reading uh, I read not reading and won't read again. Um, I don't even think we should have this on the list. I, it's the speech the, by by Captain, um, Richard, Captain Pratt. Richard Pratt. We should uh, look and see if he's related to Chris Pratt. It'd be another reason sure. for him not like <laughs> So this is the one that we spoke about earlier that, com- you know, is the, the quote, kill the Indian, save the man, comes from. Um, I would like to link it because I think it is something that should be in history books. Mm-hmm. People should learn um, that this is how we talked about people. This is a, how we justified genocide. Um, and the fact that this language still exists and these ideas still persist today. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's what I'm reading. They're not uplifting pieces. Are any of them going to be? <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> so I want to recommend Vicki Krause's article about the bill that she talked to us about um, in Michigan about making English the official language, which, again, it's just like, I cannot believe that that's the law in the books in so many states. I had no idea. Um, so that one is fantastic because she is fantastic. Um, I also want to recommend a Think Progress article called How the NFL Sold Patriotism to the U.S. Military for Millions. And it's basically, I mean, this is tied to the Colin Kaepernick thing, but it's about how having the national anthem play at sporting events is a relatively new concept that we just suddenly latched onto. Did you hear, by the way, um, Trump went to a NASCAR race and said, you know, like one thing I know about NASCAR, they always stand for the national anthem. So um, Jalen Rose, who is a former NBA player, mm-hmm. um, he has a new show. He's a co-host on a new show called Get Up on ESPN. It comes on at 7 in the morning. That me and That's why you have to get anyway. up for it. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the other day he was talking about um, – it's NFL pre. It's not preseason. It's an NFL, you know, warm ups and practices are starting. And um, Odell Beckham, who you know suffered an ankle ankle injury last season, um, there's been and this is his last year of his contract, I think. And there's been conversations about whether or not he'll show up to you know the option uh, the um, the non obligatory practices. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about the NFL is that you know there's guaranteed money and there's non guaranteed money. So. A majority of people's contracts are non-guaranteed, which means that if you get hurt, you don't get paid. Um, And the average, uh, I think, I don't know what the average um, career term is for NFL player, but it's very short compared to other leagues because it's a very violent league. Um, 
And so he mentioned two things. He was like, there's two leagues um, where if people don't show up to optional practices, they get vilified. They oh, get vilified for guess, it. Let me guess. Let me guess. Go ahead. Is it the NFL and the NBA? It is the NFL and the NBA. And he was very explicit. And actually, I, I, I th- I'd like to link to – well, we'll we'll tweet about it. Yeah. Um, we did tweet about it. You can find it on our Twitter feed. But he said, you know, it's the NBA and it's the NFL, and you don't see this in, the, in um, baseball. You don't see this in other sports where people are vilified. People are shown as being greedy, um, as, as all of these other things. And so – Episode mm-hmm. we did yeah. a little while ago. Episode four. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I you know, I think that that was just like a really you know kind of spot on point that he made about how different people are treated in different leagues, and it's really along lines of race. Yeah, um, and I think I want to. This is not something I'm reading; it's something I'm watching. But the show, The Good Fight, which is fantastic, it's a spinoff of one of my favorite TV shows because I'm apparently just like a middle-aged woman already, um, <laughs> 30 years old, uh, The Good Wife. But The Good Fight just had an episode about ICE and immigration, and one of the main characters, one of my favorite characters, who I clocked instantly as being Nigerian, just because we can identify each other very easily. Um, but he ends up getting in some immigration trouble. He gets arrested for driving while black, And then it turns out that he thought that he was an American citizen, but his parents had forged his birth certificate, and he's not a citizen. And while he was um, pulled over and arrested for something else, ICE has been notified of his uh, detention, and so they are waiting for him to get released, like right outside the courtroom so that they can take him um, and detain him. And so it's like a whole episode about just like immigration rights and about federalism, so like states' rights versus the federal rights and... It is a very tense episode, and, like, you hope that everything's going to be okay, but, like, it is also very interesting to see, like, it's not just the Latinx community that is being targeted by ICE, although, like, that is the majority of who they're targeting. Like, they're targeting black and brown people in general, and so, like, the fact that this character, this man is Nigerian, like, he is a target. And so the show is fantastic. This episode is really, really great and just sort of shines a light on things that I don't know necessarily we talk about that Mm -hmm. much. Yeah. So yeah, and also watch The Good Wife because for five <laughs> seasons it was incredible. <laughs> Do not watch the last two; it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that you know one thing I want to hopefully leave listeners with is um, please engage us on this topic in particular because there's a lot that um, I have a lot of gaps yeah. in my learning. As do I. Um, and I would like to fill them and help other people fill them. So. Um, if you, you know, for those of you who know so much more than me, please send us materials. Yeah. Um, send us, you know, I would love to interact and talk to folk. Um, so you can email us. We're at um, at the intersection of at Gmail. Uh-huh. You can tweet at us. We're at at the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, you can find us on Instagram. Yep. At the podcast. At we're the at the podcast on everything except for email. Yeah. Honestly. Weird. <laughs> um, Facebook.com slash at the podcast. Yeah. It's not weird. It's just, you know was taken yeah. and I did my best <laughs> um, you can find us on our website at dash the dash intersection dot com I think that's everything yeah um, yeah so follow out. us on Instagram follow us on Twitter uh, like us on Facebook and email us yeah also shout out to um, the music producer yes uh, seven keys you can find him on um, Instagram at Mr. Underscore Seven Keys. That's the numeral seven. Um, 
Yeah. So, you know, share, like, subscribe, uh, rate, review. rate, review, all of that. Yeah, please. <laughs> we'll get that into a better catchphrase <laughs> later. But yeah. All right. This has been At the Intersection.